0: is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio.
1: Hi, I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. It's week 32, working mostly from home. COVID-19 cases rising again in Europe and the U.S. The U.S. presidential election just a little more than a week away. Some stops and starts to the financial markets as investors awaited for another stimulus package. This week, Bloomberg's Paul Sweeney and I cut up with a group of disruptors and those trying to take disruption and make the world a better, more equitable place. And that included the new president of George Mason University, Dr. Gregory Washington.
2: We've been able to figure out different ways to basically invent a new normal.
1: Plus, you might say she's a disruptor as well, often referred to as the woman who built Beijing. My conversation with Xin Zhang, co-founder and CEO of Soho China, and how China is back to work post-pandemic. Speaking of disruptors, we begin with the cover story in the magazine this week. It's Robinhood, the online brokerage that is one of the COVID economy's breakout successes. The question is, can it be more than an addictive trading app dominated by millennials? Bloomberg's Paul Sweeney and I talked with Bloomberg News investing reporter Annie Massa and Bloomberg Businessweek editor Jill Weber.
3: One of the stories of the pandemic is just how day trading became the thing that has been captivating people on their phones for months now and it it's made people be doing things that are sometimes a little bit crazier than what they would have probably otherwise been doing simply because there's nothing else going on that looks like an entertainment in the same way and so it's basically almost become robin hood especially has almost become sort of part of this like financial entertainment ecosystem (laughs) during the pandemic and so we've been watching it um along the way and annie uh mazza has been breaking a ton of news and we wanted to kind of put it all together and just say, like, look, this is a you know, Robinhood is now officially a pandemic pastime. Um, but the question becomes, where do they go from here? I think. What's the plan? Where? How do you take something that you know they popularize free trading, trading fractional shares of ownership now? But where do you go from from there? And Annie, what did you find out as you tried to ask that question?
4: Yeah, that was a major question we were trying to figure out because Robinhood has proved so amazing at just getting people onto its platform like it spread like wildfire um signing up three million users in the first four months of the year alone and so we were kind of asking um what's the next act for Robinhood? and when you look at it the way that they're pitching themselves to these investors they say okay we get these first time traders in the door and then the next step for us is to have them grow with us into all kinds of other products that Robinhood doesn't offer yet. But things like one day they'll want us for mortgage lending, or car and rental insurance, or life insurance, even. So they have much bigger, a much bigger vision for what they want all these customers to do on their platform. That's not just trading. But the catch is, um, if you're going to offer things like insurance and you know retirement accounts to people, you really need their trust, and that's a place where they've struggled.
5: So, Annie, talk to us about the typical Robinhood um, trader or account user. What's the profile?
4: I think that there is kind of a stock image in everyone's mind of a typical Robinhood trader. I mean, 80% of their assets under management do come from millennial users, so it's absolutely a millennial product, but Gen Z is in the mix as well. And I think um, you know the, the typical image that you might get in your head of a Robinhood user is, maybe a college age or, um, you know, kind of 20-something uh, trader, a, a lot of men. But it's, that's not the only profile. We, we spoke to all kinds of people who use this app, um, including people who don't use it just for day trading, um, who are trying to invest a little bit more long-term. And so it varies, but that millennial group is core for them.
3: And, Annie, um, you mentioned some struggles. Let's talk about uh, sort of the 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 – Pieces of the puzzle that um, Robinhood users have encountered (laughs) and, you know, some of them have become uh, frustrated about. What what are some of those main gripes?
4: Absolutely. Well, one of the more recent issues was um, around 2,000 accounts um, were compromised, um, which they found in an internal review. And that's News We Broke a couple weeks ago. And the main frustration, I think, around this issue and others that have come up with Robinhood um, over this year is they don't have a customer service phone number and a frustration. (laughs) Wait, what? It's like you just (laughs) stop right there. It's like, what? Yeah. That's right. So, And I mean, it's really like, it's very Silicon Valley, actually, like a a lot of companies (laughs) that we use all the time, a lot of tech companies don't have a real customer service number. But this isn't like really this isn't like questions. Uber.
1: You know, I didn't get my car. It's like I have a question about my investments.
4: Exactly. And like, <laughs> if you're worried that your account was hacked, or if there's an outage, like they had a major day-long outage way at the beginning of um, you know right before pan- the pandemic lockdown started on March second, that lasted all day. So if you're sitting there with your phone, like. You know, either the app is totally down or I'm seeing, you know, funds disappear from my account because I'm worried it was hacked. Like, there's no one to call and that does freak people out. So it's this question of, like, can we move into a world where people are okay with that? One thing, Robinhood was really an early mover into free commission trading. And at the time, I think it was kind of a wacky idea. And now that's the industry standard. I mean, around this time last year... Charles Schwab moved to zero commissions, and all of the other major brokerages did the same. And now, you know, zero commission trading is the industry standard. So, I mean, that's one way. They um, they offer fractional shares. That's something which is the ability to buy just a piece of a stock instead of the whole thing.
1: That's Bloomberg News investing reporter Annie Massa and Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber. Check out that full story and more stories in this week's issue that's on newsstands now on the Bloomberg and online at Bloomberg.com. And as you heard, Robinhood disrupting the online brokerage space with more customers than some of the established players. Later on, we're going to check in with one of the first disruptors in the financial world. We're talking about the financial platform Wealthfront. Coming up next though, Robinhood, you just heard, surging amid COVID-19. We know cases are also on the rise again, but kids as super spreaders? Our next guest says, hmm, not so much. We'll hear from the CEO of Surgical Solutions. That's next. This is Bloomberg.
0: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio.
1: This week, some tough headlines on the virus as a second wave continue to make its way around the globe with the U.S., India, and Brazil accounting for more than half of all COVID-19 cases. Well, a voice that we've reached out to several times throughout the pandemic is Alyssa Rapp. She's CEO of the healthcare solutions company Surgical Solutions. They provide equipment, people, strategies, or capital to the healthcare community. She also teaches at Stanford's Graduate School of Business and Chicago's Booth Business School. Bloomberg's Paul Sweeney and I caught up with Alyssa Rapp, who reminded us about the Difficulties of COVID nineteen.
6: It continues to be a complicated COVID landscape. On the one hand, we know the diagnoses are up in fifty six thousand ish a day, and thirty one states are reporting more uh, cases than the previous week. And yet, there is an overwhelming amount of uh, intelligence now that COVID nineteen transmissions from children, and maybe the children are not to blame. So, I think it's it's a tough, tough to navigate.
5: So, Alyssa, on that front, you know the children here, you know, the New York City schools are you know obviously the largest school district in the country, opening pretty well so far. Does that suggest that maybe children are not super spreaders, which was a risk as we reopened schools?
6: Great question, Paul. So you know there was an interesting article on this in the Atlantic just about ten days ago that schools aren't the super spreaders. Um, from an economist at Brown University, Emily Oster. And I, I'm certainly not seeing that they're the super spreaders where we are in suburban Chicago. And if children are in masks and socially distant, between that between that economist view and the American Academy of Pediatrics literally also pr- printed an article that said COVID-19, the child is not to blame. And an Icelandic study talked about how children don't give it to teachers. I I am not an epidemiologist. I said it once, I'll say it again. But to me, the data is compelling that children don't seem to be super spreaders. And I'm really glad the reopening has been less um, virulent, p- pun intended. Than than people anticipated.
1: Right. We actually had Emily on, and uh, we did a great oh, story in Bloomberg Business Week about her and just kind of her background and her thinking. But we also had her on to talk about her work and her research. Yeah, it's interesting. I just did a, a big discussion with a bunch of global real estate leaders, and you know, there was a consensus, especially when it comes to colleges and universities, a feeling of we've got to get those students back. I think you know the concern among colleges and universities has been. The older professors and their exposure.
6: Yeah, and I I teach, as you you may know, at at Stanford University and University of Chicago, and they've been very conservative about Zooming only for the fall out of not concern for potentially me or my age peer group, but um, older professors. And I think that's actually gone better than expected from a student learning perspective, at least at the graduate level. But I think we do, of course, have to be most concerned about our most vulnerable population, and that includes age and other comorbidities or risk factors and, and that those are the folks who will likely get the vaccine first as they should but the question now becomes how do we learn to live with it until the vaccine is truly widespread by the middle of next year and i'm a little bit hopeful in spite of the numbers i, I cited in the beginning that if children aren't the super spreaders and we can at least get kids back to school with masks socially distant and safe ways even if it's hybrid learning like my my two daughters who are under 10 both enjoy then at least Civilization and society, as we know it, can start to unlock a little
5: bit. Hey, listen, your you know your company, you have over 200 employees. They're really on the front lines of this in the healthcare system. One of the, the concerns or questions, I guess, people have is, okay, we were we being the U.S. healthcare system was you know fairly well blindsided by this back in March of last year. What have we learned from a healthcare facility perspective? Are we in better shape for a potential second wave?
6: I, I talked to our major hospitals. We have 40 across the country in nine states and they are better prepared operationally in terms of PPE and supplies and protocols. Um, but a lot of hospital administrators think about COVID right now as a second job. It literally doubles their mm. workload. So I think the bigger risk is not operational preparedness, but, but burnout amongst yeah. frontline providers as well as the administrators, because this has taken a major on, on, our, on our people.
1: Hey, I want to go back to, if I may, just to, listen, to education for a moment. I do wonder if there had been some consensus, some you know, overarching guidance from government. I'm not looking to get political here, but, you know, some rules from the government about here's here's some plans and ways to, to reopen education on a national scale so that we didn't have all these hybrid approaches. Would that have been better and maybe helped get education
6: open, uh, up and running sooner and more and safely? It- It may have, but I heard Dr. Fauci speak to the Economic Club of Chicago about six weeks ago, and his Mm -hmm. response to that question was, I thought the best I've heard, which is we should, our federal response should be one of localization. So it doesn't matter what state you're in. It should matter what locality you're in and what the cases are. Are they on the rise? If you're in a, if you're in a state where it's on the rise, but your locality has no cases of COVID, like some of our hospitals in rural Kentucky, Then you should be back open. Your kids should be in school and masks the social distancing, no matter what the state situation is. Although I don't know if Kentucky is a a rising state today, but what I think his answer is the best one. If the federal policy had been its hyper local decision making on this, perhaps we would have had more nimble responses. Perhaps.
5: So listen, I guess it, you know, as it relates to these schools and so on i mean it, it seems like the virtual is working that's why i have a high school student with a kind of a hybrid approach that seems to be one of the more successful ones
6: i think hybrid with with some in person and some uh virtual learning does to me also paul seem like the more successful approach if of course you can flex to pure virtual if there's an exposure and if the world is very different comes spring and there's a vaccine that's wide, widely dis- distributed then people could be back but I, I am grateful we're back hybrid as well in elementary school. I think the biggest risk is, as we know, with co- our college campuses or graduate schools where adult young adults uh, are are in concentrated settings and maybe not taking as many precautions, and that's where we see a spread. So we'll see. You know, Alyssa, you did mention you are teaching. Are you teaching
1: classes right now? I'm just curious if you are and how that's going.
6: Yeah, thanks so much, Carol. I did teach this spring in the beginning of the pandemic, and I just finished a course at Stanford Business School via Zoom, of course, and it's going well. It's just a different art form. Uh, when you're a, when you're a professor at a graduate level with forty to sixty people in the room, you read the room and their body language as well as probing them with the Socratic method. All that can be done via Zoom. It's just slightly different, and it, t- it has taken practice. But it's gone well. Thank you for asking.
5: So what's, you know, you think about it, I have two uh, children in college. Thankfully, it's their last year, tuition-wise. Um, but they both said, yeah, it, it's not ideal, but we're, we're kind of getting through it. Um, the only thing, you know, labs are a little bit of an issue. Uh, but other than that, you know, they were doing a lot of their stuff kind of remotely anyway as they get to the later years of, of college.
6: Mm-hmm. I think it also depends on the nature of the student, him or herself, right? If yeah. this is a self-starter who is going to do the work. And still gets to be in an environment with peers, uh, hopefully in a safe environment with peers, social distancing and masks wherever possible. I think that it, it can be still really successful.
1: That's Alyssa Rapp, CEO of the healthcare solutions company, Surgical Solutions, finding ways to stay connected with her students despite the pandemic. Check out that full interview at Bloomberg.com or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, you're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. We talk a lot about the dual crises of the pandemic and racism. Our next guest says his crisis list includes a third item. We'll check in with the new president of George Mason University. This is Bloomberg.
0: is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio.
1: Common themes through many of our interviews on our daily radio show, understandably, continue to be about the two crises facing our country, talking about the virus and racial injustice. For some, though, that list is even longer. Take Dr. Gregory Washington. He became president at George Mason University in July. Dr. Washington spent some time with Bloomberg News higher education finance reporter Janet Lauren, Paul Sweeney, and me, and shared what it was like stepping into his job at a really, really tough time.
2: We were actually dealing with three crises. And so uh, pandemic and our crisis of racial inequity, but also we're dealing with a budget crisis uh, because many states were struggling to support uh, their state universities. And so we had a $124 million budget gap that I had to manage as well. So uh, suffice to say, to take care of the racial inequity problem required money, which I didn't have. Right. So, uh, it, you know, we tackle the problem as I tackle most problems as an engineer, right? And in, in a methodical kind of way, right? You, uh, you you eat an elephant one bite at a time, and, uh, and and you tackle it by bringing groups of people together to help you solve uh, the problem. And so we established a task force on racial inequity and began and, and started that task force working towards coming up with solutions that were going to help the campus. And uh, as it relates to the pandemic, we've put together a separate, safer return to campus task force that's focused on that. And, and we've had tremendous results in both. And, and, and that is propelling the institution uh, forward at, at this particular point in time.
5: So uh, Janet, you know, Dr. Washington talking about the precarious finances, which we're, we're hearing across so many different industries, and that includes higher education. What's your reporting been generally about what some of these big colleges, universities, how they're trying to piece it all together from an economic perspective?
4: Well, it's a tough time, partly because uh, revenue isn't what schools uh, are used to seeing about this time. Uh, Fewer enrollments uh, means less money. Uh, Fewer students on campus means uh, fewer students are paying for um, dorms. Fewer students are paying for dining services. Uh, They've all had to Many of them have had to uh, offer refunds for housing when students left in March. Uh, Now George Mason is bucking the trend a little bit in enrollment. Uh, We just had some numbers from the the National Clearinghouse data source uh, which talked about a a decline of 14% for freshman enrollment and overall enrollments were down. But your enrollments were up about 2% this year with record enrollment. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how you accomplished that and where those numbers come from?
2: Well, they uh, primarily come from in-state students, and, uh, you know, we we are the beneficiaries of a being in a part of the region of the country where uh, the population is still growing, and that helped us. Uh, But because we actually brought students back to campus, and we did so in an aggressive way, students didn't... uh, you know, feel the need not to come back, right? There mm-hmm. was, uh, if, you, if you could, if you could take all of your classes online, or if you were going to hit, be hit with exorbitant fees and costs in terms of going to school, people started to ask the question, maybe I should take a gap year. Maybe I should take some time off and not come back. Well, we made it advantageous and we made it, uh, clear to our students that we were going to provide an environment uh, for them, that was maybe not quite what they had uh, two years ago, but something really, really close. And we worked really, really hard with providing all sorts of ways for students to congregate safely and uh, for them to enjoy fast food through our mobile robotic food delivery services. From and, and so we put a lot of different. Uh, you know, students can go to movies together. They go to. We have this large drive-in movies where students actually can do that together. Uh, and, and we did lots of virtual kinds of engagements with students. We had Tiffany Haddish uh, on campus and other kinds of things. So so we've been able to figure out different ways to basically invent a new normal, which is what I think institutions are going to have to do because they're going to be dealing with the virus for right. quite some time.
1: In about 45 seconds, I mean, how much does this set you back, This the virus, financially?
2: Well, look. The reality of the situation is it sets us back tremendously. Um, we're we are talking about a uh, average student twelve thousand dollars per head for room and board, and if you and and, and we got sixty eight hundred slots, mm-hmm. so you just do the math. That's seventy eighty million dollars lost when we don't bring students back to campus, and it and the numbers just go up from there.
1: It's a reminder that for all of us, this has a deep economic cost as well. That's Dr. Gregory Washington, president at George Mason University, with Bloomberg News Higher Education Finance reporter Janet Lauren. That full conversation, by the way, check it out on our podcast feed. Still to come, she is often dubbed the woman who built Beijing, how China's major cities are getting back to work with the CEO and co-founder of Soho China. You're listening to Bloomberg Businessweek, and this is Bloomberg.
0: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio.
1: This week, the Milken Global Conference wrapped up virtually, and this year's event included a panel that I moderated and talked about on our daily radio show. It was entitled Real Estate in the Eye of the Storm that included commercial and residential real estate leaders from around the world. One of them was Xin Zhang. She's co-founder and CEO of Soho China Limited. And while many of us in the U.S. are still working from home as we watch COVID cases creep up again, life in China, well, it looks a lot like it did pre-pandemic.
7: People are back to work. A lot of people wear masks, but largely, you know, life has come back to normal. Uh, in the earlier time, that the first two quarters uh, of this year, we were uh, checking, uh, you know, we're, we installed um, infra camera, infra thermal to just uh, check uh, temperature, body temperature of every every person come into the building. We don't even do that anymore because China now has almost zero virus, so it is not required anymore. Uh, and you can just see that, uh, you know, working life has definitely gone back to normal. And I think that's very important to, you know, once uh, people feel safe, uh, and you know, it's it's not that hard uh, to get back to how, uh, you know, ordinary life is. Uh, I know outside of China, outside of Asia, people really wonder you know, whether this is gonna be a, transformational change that would people ever go back to work uh you know the old ways and you know people are so used to working on online and you know this is not the case in china because you can see that uh you know it's there are people just everywhere and this is an office building uh probably you know just in the middle of the day people want to go back to work and i i uh I don't know how permanent is the change of people wanted to stay, you know, in a, a secondary cities or moving to secondary cities or stay outside of the city. Remember that uh, just pre-COVID, there were times we're we talking about how people wanted to work in a much more, much more uh, uh, close environment, you know, more uh, less square footage per capita, like the way wars, like the share offices, and you know, that was just the. the the debate or the discussion that we had pre-COVID. And, you know, I don't see how a virus uh, slowed down this process of people want to work together because that we believe that really uh, encourages communication, encourages innovation, uh, and young people just want to be together, to work together. Uh, So I don't see how uh, a few months or even a year staying more at home would change that fundamental human desire to be together. Shin, do you have any thoughts on that in terms of industry variations when it comes to the commercial property market? I don't see the difference, you know, I think it's human nature and, you know, do we want to work with other people together or do we want to work alone? That's really the question. I think we all feel, you know, this is a great thing about humans is we want to be with others. We want to be with our co-workers and ideas Uh, you know, would uh, come out from these interactions. Only we feel better when we're in a a team and and in a group of people, with a a group of people.
1: So, Shin, I want to bring you in, because what are you seeing in terms of the tertiary or secondary, you know, cities when it comes to Asia specifically?
7: Well, it hasn't really showed that much of a difference. Uh, You know, like secondary tier two cities in China are... um, have never been able to catch up with the tier one cities, and even with a massive population in China uh, and with the incredible new infrastructure in these tier two cities. But still, I think talents and companies are largely attracted to tier one cities. Uh, in America, that might be different, but in China, that has been the case. Uh, and I, I also wanted to add one point is uh, what we have seen in China over this October Golden Week, a one-week national holiday, is that there was so much pent-up demand in travel. Hotels are fully booked, and, you know, restaurants are fully booked, and, you know, resorts are fully booked, and, you know, you could not move on the bond in Shanghai without pushing people around. So there was such a pent-up demand because people were so frustrated, locked down for a few months, and they were desperate to get out. And I expect that's going to be the case for London and New York. You know, as soon as the vaccine comes out, people feel free to travel, feel free to interact with people.
1: Hey, Shin, what about your properties? Because it's mixed use. What are you seeing
7: on the residential side of things? Uh, We don't do that much residential in China now. We only do office now. And I I wanted to mention just, uh, you know, as you said that, you know, central banks have printed so much money and with all these uh, rescue packages around the world, we are we are you know living in a prolonged low interest rate environment and i think that would have a positive impact on real estate because you know capital would be you know chasing after you know assets with steady cash flow so i think that uh, that would uh, you know as as fixed income allocation will be reduced, I think. And then, you know, some of that will be shifted to real estate uh, as we continue to live in this prolonged interest rate, low interest rate environment. I wanted to share one thing is logistics different from the other traditional real estates like commercial hotels or residential is. These warehouses are, number one is very quick to build. And two is they're not as location sensitive, so they they literally can build anywhere outside of the city. Um, so, in many ways, I think it's a, there's a greater danger of oversupply of logistics, uh, a logistic and a warehouse than any other uh, properties because of this nature.
1: Here's an interesting question. Um, college and university campuses foster a very important community and house an incredibly large amount of students, faculty, et cetera. Any thoughts or strategies on how real estate will evolve around campus? We've done a lot of stories here at Bloomberg just as colleges, universities have either shut down or everybody's at home, you know, how it's affected certainly the local economy.
7: Uh, It's not just the university and colleges being impacted. Anybody have any thoughts on that? The students are dying to go back to colleges. And, uh, you know, I have two college sons and they're dying to go back and and to be with their friends. And they're really, uh, they see many of their friends already contracted COVID and then recovered. But I think the issues are not the students, are the professors, right? And the faculties, they are the older ones. They need to be protected. And if the students get contracted, then what happened to the professors and and faculties?
1: Well, and I know some schools are doing where they're keeping the teacher sequestered, but the kids are together in a classroom so that at least there's a social aspect. Shin, there's a question I want to ask um, for you. It's actually from Michelle. Are any of the panelists exploring investments in AI technology in regards to health and safety? Will Will there be a great relationship there?
7: Shin. Well, well we, we went through SARS, you know, I remember at the time people were so afraid of being indoor, and then we changed our building uh, windows, you know, to from curtain walls to at least one, you know, every floor has a certain uh, percentage of openable windows. That was then the technology of the building. And now I think it's about filtering the people entering the building. So we have all these infra-thermal, you know, everywhere, and then, and, and you know, you But you need more than just the technology. You also need the, uh, you know, the environment where you're allowed to use the technology. And my understanding in the U.S. is that you have the technologies, but you're not allowed to use them for tracing, for uh, filtering. And and that in China, we don't have that problem.
1: The one thing, um, another question that came in um, had to do with. Climate change. How will changing climate, extreme weather events, rising ocean levels, wildfires Mm -hmm. affect real Mm -hmm. estate demand along the coasts or other vulnerable areas? If ensuring a home from flooding or wildfires becomes unaffordable, will governments need to intervene? And I know we've had some programs in the U.S. where local municipalities are actually buying up homes that are in just terrible areas only because. It costs those cities to have to rescue people when there's storms and so on. So they're just trying to take those homes off the market. Um, Climate change in real estate. um, Is that something that's kind
7: of on your watch list or? I'll share one story that we had uh, because this is to do with uh, climate. Uh, So two things is, you know, for a while you probably all knew that China was Filled with the uh, air pollution, especially in cities like Beijing and Shanghai, uh, and then so it was so bad that uh, we were thinking as a developer, what do we need to do to filter the air? So what we did is uh, we installed a, a filtering air filtering system to all of our buildings. And knowing that you know humans, you know, at least the Chinese in China in, in the cities are you know 80 percent of the time are indoor. So if we can filter the air indoor, we're probably doing some help. And so that's one thing to do with, you know, air... That's
1: Xinjiang, co founder and CEO of Soho China Limited, talking about really so many different factors uh, impacting the real estate market right now because of the virus, but also, you know, getting into some of those longer term trends, whether it's climate change and the things that are really going to be the real estate stories for years to come. Check out, by the way, that entire panel. You can search on slash global conference. I talked with uh, several global leaders, including, of course, Xinjiang, among them Richard Mack, co founder and CEO of Mack. Real estate group david warren ceo and founding partner of dw partners and also jonathan goldstein who's the ceo of Kane international really a great global perspective on what's happening in our real estate market well that wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of bloomberg business week from bloomberg radio i'm carol masser still to come more on real estate people saw it We'll hear from Don Peebles. He's the CEO of one of the country's few privately held national real estate investment and development companies that prioritize inclusivity in all phases of each of their projects. Also, the economist that found $16 trillion when she tallied up the cost of racial bias. We'll also check in with the co-founder of Wealthfront on Robinhood and his company's next-gen automated platform. And then luxury amid the virus. We'll hear from the CEO of Watches of Switzerland. This is Bloomberg.
0: is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio.
1: Hi, I'm Carol Masser. Joining me this week, Bloomberg's Paul Sweeney. And coming up in this hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week, we're going to hear from Wealthfront co-founder and CEO Andy Ratcliffe on fintech disruptors, plus luxury weathering the impact of the virus, watches of Switzerland CEO Brian Duffy on that brand's retail expansion plans. We begin though with what was one of the most read stories on the day it hit the Bloomberg about the economist who found $16 trillion when she tallied the cost of race bias. We do like to do the math on things here at Bloomberg. And this story definitely delivered. Bloomberg's Paul Sweeney and I got more from Bloomberg News ESG reporter sajil Kishin and Bloomberg Business Week editor Jill Weber.
3: Sejal, um found a story that is just one of these stories that it's sort of like, how do you how do you find that story? I think. Um, and it's about Dana Peterson, who is a Citigroup um, global economist. She tried to put a, a price tag on race bias in terms of what it actually means to the economy um, say Joel how did she come up with sixteen trillion dollars <laughs>
8: um, well it took her something like three months to do um, and she poured over I mean she's a macro economist um, so she's normally looking at sort of like big macroeconomic data but instead she she, she turned to microeconomic data yeah everything from uh, wage levels by race to debt levels um, by county, for instance, um, and basically tallied the cost, um, you know, saying that over the last two decades, uh, the, the U.S. economy lost out um, on $16 trillion uh, because of, of, of racism.
5: So, Sejal, is this kind of, I mean, where, what's the source of the lost economic growth? Is it taxes? Is it GDP output? Where, where, is it, where do we see it in the economy? Or where did she sure.
8: Yeah, it's 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 a GDP. That's a, that that was her calculation. She looked at the overall economy um, and uh, did it that way.
3: And and Sejal, uh, talk to us about where where should it's landed her. Um, and this was a, a project that took months. Um, mm-hmm. Not something that anybody had ever tried to do. And, and what was the outcome?
8: Yeah, I mean, um, you know, obviously her report got a lot of uh, widespread uh, widespread, uh, readership uh, when it came out last month. Um, But, you know, since uh, doing her report, uh, she's taken up a role um, at the conference board where she's now the uh, chief um, global uh, chief economist there.
1: What's great about a story like this is, and I feel like, you know, Joel, I feel like this this is a number we're going to be quoting at a lot of Bloomberg events, you know, over the next year or so, virtually or other, because it's just, you know, when you put a number on something, money talks and money gets people to do things. I mean, there's another one in your story, Sejal, that talks about her calculations and that an additional 6.1 million jobs a year 13 trillion in business revenue could have been generated over the last two decades if black entrepreneurs had fair and equitable access to credit this is a story i mean vc the venture capital world i mean there's just no money going there
8: yeah no absolutely i mean that number also struck me that 13 trillion dollars in um, business revenue that that's a huge amount um, but you know she she did the work she did the calculations and and we've um, also you know our our tech colleagues on the west coast have done some stories about um, sort of the struggles of uh, black entrepreneurs trying to secure vc capital so you know this is the number you know that that she put on that which is is a, a huge number and I think you know putting or quantifying this, I mean, this goes beyond the sort of the social and moral imperative of sort of ending racism, you know, putting a number on these things. And, and, you know, to take her word, she says, this is a way that, um, you know, people in the world of finance and um, economy, and and, um, the the economy, which is our wheelhouse at Bloomberg, um, this is something that they can actually relate to.
5: So interesting, Sajal. going forward, I was looking in your piece, you've got some numbers about even going forward, the cost could be just out, outstanding. $8 trillion gain in gross domestic product by 2050, if we can close the racial equity gaps, that, that's according to Alterum, uh, a nonprofit in Ann Arbor, Michigan. So the numbers, I mean, going forward could also be just compelling.
8: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we've done a lot of uh, coverage about how um, Black and, and Latinx and other minority communities in the U.S. have been disproportionately affected by by COVID and, and economically as well, not just health-wise. And so, you know, given where the economy is now at the moment, it's not an insignificant number. I mean, um, what uh, Dana mentioned is like it's a growth opportunity. You know, and, and money makers are always always looking for growth opportunities. So. Maybe um, you know, investing in, in black-run businesses, for instance, is a way to to not only help uh, that community but to get the overall um, economy back on its feet.
3: Sadra, another thing that um, uh, stood out to me in the story, and it's just sort of one of those daggers in the heart, was this yeah. sort of this is a person that worked at, at City for a really long time and never put her face into the system because she didn't want you know her colleagues' bias to impact um sort of her ability to do her job. Um talk to talk to us more about that side of the story.
8: Yeah, no, absolutely. That was uh, one of the most poignant parts of the conversation I had with her. Um I mean, she's she's been on um, you know, um financial news networks, including ours, Um, so it's good to see. But, um, yeah, it was a really sad reality um, that, you know, she wanted to be judged on her work first rather than people judging her um, on her race. And so, um, yeah, not putting her photograph on the email system felt that she would have a, a better shake Um, or a fair fair shake, um, at being, um, you know, chosen to like do presentations or, or write reports. Um, but yeah, it was a really poignant part of the interview. There are so many professionals out there who unfortunately, you know, do endure the same sort of racism, um, that everybody else does. And I, I think we don't pay so much attention to that. And her bringing and talking about her story brought that to life. It was a real sort of reality check. Well, nothing like research and data
1: and hard numbers to give us the facts and really a reality check. That's Bloomberg News ESG reporter Sajal Kishin and Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week coming up. Our next guest and his company dub the term affirmative development, where inclusivity is a priority in all phases of each real estate project that they do. We'll catch up with Don Peebles. That's next. This is Bloomberg.
0: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio.
1: We're bringing you some of the highlights of our daily radio broadcast and podcast, and that included a guest who understands real estate, politics, understands making a difference and creating a more equal and just world. We're talking about Don Peebles, founder, chairman, and CEO of the Peebles Corporation. He also served on the National Finance Committee of President Barack Obama. Bloomberg's Paul Sweeney and I began by asking about the state of U.S. residential real estate. You know,
9: interestingly enough, we're still seeing a lot of tailwinds for single-family real estate. I think single-family homes are very strong, interest rates surge mm-hmm. at historic lows, and so it's propelling a lot of buyers who are able to do that <clears throat> and take advantage of it or out in the market buying. So that continues to be a bright spot. I think we're seeing um, in some places what was very interesting is in Los Angeles, the condo sales market is actually doing well, and uh, it's a surprising bright spot in the marketplace. And, uh, and that's, again, because people uh, want to get out of their cars. They want to live closer to where they work, and, uh, and their economy is beginning to open back up. I think the challenge in the industry and in, in real estate overall will be the obvious, which is retail, brick-and-mortar retail, and uh, hospitality sectors are, mm-hmm. are being very challenged right now. And the office is kind of a wait-and-see right now.
5: Hey, Don, as you're well aware, there's this uh, existential uh, discussion going on, argument going on about the future of New York City. Does it have a future? How bright is it? Uh, What are your thoughts?
9: Well, of course, I think New York City definitely has a future, and it will always be a bright future. It's a city of 8.5 million people. That being said, about 100,000 residents have left Manhattan, uh, which is a significant number out of 2 million oc- uh, residents. Um, I think what we're seeing in New York, though, is a, sh- uh, a, a perpetuation and continuation of a trend that was beginning to happen before, and it started with uh, the salt. Once the state and local income tax deductions were taken away, it started encouraging more high-net-worth individuals to relocate to more tax-friendly environments. And then there was a diminishment of quality of life. The city got... A bit dirtier. Crime was creeping up a little bit. And then with this pandemic, it has accelerated that. So I think on the high end, ultra luxury side, uh, the residential market is going to struggle. The their sales volume for residential condos is down significantly and vacancy rates are at you know um, uh, all time highs. Um, right now, vacancy rates for apartments in Manhattan or New York City as a whole are over five percent, which is a, a very big number and, uh, and then and then there is about almost 20 million square feet of sublet office space. So we're seeing a shift. And, and what we're also seeing now is millennials uh, coming of age, of having, uh, being married, having kids, and seeking out places that are more conducive uh, to that where the public school systems are more predictable and uh, a little better quality of life and lower cost. So I think we're going to see a shift of what New York City looks like Um and we're going to see that that shift is happening now, and, and I think New York is going to become, it will become much more affordable for younger people. And I think it'll, you know, one of the silver linings of New York is it'll attract younger and more creative people uh, there because it'll be more cost-effective.
1: Well, so what does it also then mean for you've got the gateway cities and then you've got secondary and tertiary cities? I mean, is that where you want to be investing at this point? Maybe not the gateway cities so much, or or I don't know. How do you see it, Don?
9: Yeah, I I think it's very challenging right now to make any kind of strategic long-term investment in New York City. I think if you look at the emerging markets, the ones that are the, what would be the tertiary cities that are emerging and are going to become much more dominant players. I would say Charlotte, North Carolina, has significant good news. Recently, uh, they just got a new uh, corporate relocation that's going to spend about $2 billion on a headquarters. Um, you have uh, Tennessee, especially Nashville, uh, continuing to do well. South Florida is on a great run, both on the single-family side and attracting More entrepreneurial financial services firms down there. And some of the bigger banks are beginning to look at back a house down there as well. So I I think that those types of markets, uh, and then some of the other, I think Nevada is going to begin to pick up, and Texas is, you know, Austin's doing very well, will continue to do very well. I think it's the New York and the Chicago's um, that are, and and cities, the major gateway cities are going to struggle, Boston being an exception to that because life sciences and the strong intellectual capital in that marketplace are saving it from what would be catastrophic results like what New York is beginning to see right now.
5: Hmm. So, Don, just uh, quickly, tax. you mentioned the tax policy. What can states like New York and New Jersey and some others do? I mean, they just simply try to get more efficient? a
9: combination of things. I mean, I think that I mean, we they, New York has to recognize, and New Jersey has to recognize that they are losing residents by the moment. I mean, we just uh, launched a new private club in Miami Beach called the Bath Club, which is a, a private beach club. and we are getting you know flooded by applications of people coming from New York relocating down, you know, just kind of almost for the moment. So they've got to so New York New York, New Jersey have to recognize. They've got to compete for residents, so they've got to be much more efficient and take a, a fresh look at what role the government has, especially in New York City. What is the role of a municipal government? It can't be everything to everybody. It's yes. got to right size its workforce quickly, um, and, and, it's, and and this administration has been reluctant to do that. Mm. And then I think it has to take think about longer term tax policy. New York should be in the business of reducing taxes and incentivizing right. uh, job generation. And, and productivity.
1: Don. one thing I wanted to ask you is, and I just got done earlier today doing a real estate panel for Milken, and it was with global real estate leaders, and one of the participants was Zhang Jin, who is the founder and CEO of Soho China, and she made a point of you know, there's very few women when it comes to global real estate. And I know we've talked with you before, and there were other participants in the panel and all white men who said, you know what? There is no diversity when it comes to, to real estate. Are we making any progress, especially with what we have seen over the last, and the conversations over the last six to seven months in terms of racism and inequalities? Have we, are we making any progress on any of this?
9: Um, I think, you know, yes slowly but surely um, if you look at it think about this the global head of real estate for Blackstone is a woman and an immensely qualified women, woman and I believe that I mean as women continue to confront and call out um, the you know discriminatory practices the glass ceiling that they confront they those glass ceilings get shattered
1: systemic problems require systemic solutions. We hear that a lot. That, of course, was Don Peebles, founder, chairman, and CEO of the Peebles Corporation. Check out that full conversation wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up, we talked about the cover story earlier, Robin Hood disrupting the online trading world. Well, one of the early disruptors in the investing and financial world was Wealthfront. Co-founder and CEO Andy Ratcliffe weighs in on the upstarts and more. This is Bloomberg
0: is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio
1: this week's cover story, we talked about it earlier. It's all about Robinhood, which has exploded in popularity this year as millions of Americans stuck at home, including throngs of millennials, have been looking to make some money during a pandemic that has sent stock prices swinging. Well, Robinhood is disrupting the financial industry and certainly disrupting trading. But one of the first firms to do that years ago is Wealthfront, founded back in 2008. Andy Rackleff is co-founder and CEO at Wealthfront, and he gave Bloomberg's Paul Sweeney and me an update On the company.
10: We're a next gen banking service that helps young professionals manage their money. So we provide high interest checking and low cost investment management services all through a five star rated app. And our vision is to automate all of your finances. We call this self driving money. And by that, what I mean is you can direct deposit your paycheck with us, we automatically pay your bills, and then route the remaining money to the most appropriate investment or savings account depending on your situation and goals. So So, with that in mind, the thing I think that's affected us the most are, I think there's been a a, a bunch of people, rather than wanting a diversified and managed portfolio, I think that uh, day trading has really taken off this year. Right. And the other big thing that we've noticed is that with the drop in interest rates people uh, are more inclined to day trade or try to pick securities in order to make up for the fact that they're not earning that interest on their savings.
5: So Andy, during this pandemic, I've upped my digital banking game pretty substantially, I must say, um, and I find and with a number of financial institutions. So it seems like these big players they're investing money in fintech. They're investing money in their front-end platforms as they integrate with their consumers. How, what's your competitive advantage going against maybe some of the big commercial banks or brokerage firms and things like that?
10: Well, I would say that it's business model and technology. So first, let me talk about business model. Traditional banks use branches. And what most people don't realize is that the average branch costs the average consumer per year. So if you take the cost to operate a branch and divide it by the number of people that it serves, it costs you about $200 a year or costs a bank $200 a year to offer that branch. Well, they've got to pay for that. And the way that they pay for that is through a number of fees that most people don't like. Uh, Next generation banking services like Wealthfront don't charge those nickel and dime fees. So you're going to be far better off, first of all, just not from not having the fees. Second of all, we pay uh, interest on our balances. We pay 0.35%. I use Wells Fargo. They pay me 0% Hmm. on my checking balance. So the fact that they have to support branches is a real negative for young people who don't want to go to a branch. It's probably a positive for a baby boomer who likes that personal interaction. So it's a very generational thing. On technology, banks are terrible at developing software. You know, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase uh, got quite a bit of attention a few months ago because they wrote off their personal finance app called Fin. In contrast, Wealthfront is the highest-rated financial app in the App Store. Just because both companies offer software – doesn't mean that they're of comparable quality.
1: You know, Andy, you have seen a lot of cycles in the financial industry. You co-founded, were a general partner at Benchmark Capital. You've been an investor in the likes of Juniper, um, Equinox. I mean, you see the world from a lot of different angles. When it comes to specifically, though, the financial industry, what do you make of something like a Robin Hood?
10: Well, every once in a while, something comes along that really just captures the industry's imagination. and trading really did that and they've done a superb job of growing the business as a result of offering something that people really wanted
5: it's interesting india i think you know we're all in the old enough uh, sadly i guess to remember the dot-com boom day trading that kind of thing it turned didn't turn out very well for some of uh, those folks and it kind of signaled in hindsight uh, that was clearly a peak in the market any concerns about that here or do you just feel it's different this time
10: no. Uh, the One of the funny things is that every 15 years or so, there is a day trading boom, and it usually coincides with a market that's gone up by 40% in less than six months. Because when the market trades up very, very significantly, it's like shooting fish in a barrel. Any stock you pick <laughs> is going to go up. The, the mistake that individual investors make is they confuse absolute performance – with relative performance. You know, if the market's up 40% and you're up 25 you think you're a genius and you're actually terrible.
1: That's Andy Ratcliffe, co founder and CEO at the Automated Investment Service Wealth Front, making a pretty good point when it comes to trading, something to think about amid the pandemic and the volatility that we're seeing in the market. And you can check out that full conversation by going to our podcast feed at Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts. Or wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, we may be doing more online financially. We are also apparently increasingly going online when it comes to shopping in the luxury space. We check in with the CEO of Watches of Switzerland, Brian Duffy. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week and this is Bloomberg.
0: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio.
1: We're going to wrap up this week with a check on the luxury space. Recently, our Bloomberg Pursuits team posted a story. They talked with Hilton's head of luxury brands who said that year-end will be the start of travel's turnaround. He is betting on pent-up demand, but in general, we know the luxury space has definitely seen its share of ups and downs because of COVID-19. Bloomberg's Paul Sweeney and I checked in with Brian Duffy. He's the CEO of Watches of Switzerland Group who was based in London, and we talked with him from there. That's a city, of course, that we know that was once again in in the midst of the coronavirus. We're
11: taking it very seriously we've being very careful. London has really been impacted, um, you know, continually through this, uh, this period and has actually moved a bit backwards
5: in terms of uh, traffic and behavior. So we'll see. Um, so, well, Brian, this has really been, uh, you know, a disruptive time, not only to people's lives, uh, but obviously to businesses as well. How has this pandemic Uh, impacted your business really over the last seven or eight months? Um, A a lot, uh, you know, uh,
11: better results than we ever could have uh, predicted. I'm sure you've seen our results for the um, 10 weeks of the quarter that we're we're currently in, and we're we're actually trading at plus 20% in constant currency, which I never honestly, I'm an optimistic guy at the best of times, but I, I would never have predicted that. Um, and it just seems that, you know, we're, we're very fortunate with the products that we sell. We have a, a very big partnership with Rolex, uh, we're a hugely popular brand, uh, also Patek Philippe, Udomar Piguet, brands in which, you know, we have waiting lists, we have supply not meeting the demand overall. So we're in a very fortunate situation. Um, it seems that our clients, uh, particularly in the U.S., our, our business in the U.S. has been very, very strong. And it seems that you know people have money; um, they've accumulated money. The traditional things that they might have spent it on, of travel and hospitality and fashion, mm-hmm. really hasn't uh, been available to them. So our category has been popular, and within that category, we've clearly done a good job. So uh, surprisingly, we're, uh, we're trading uh, we're trading very well.
1: Well, what I'm wondering, though, Brian, I mean, go take us back to March and April. What was that time like? Um, And I know you just gave us the numbers. I believe it was for the the second quarter, and you did see 20% 20 growth. And that does sound really good considering this environment. And you're right. You have a certain kind of customer base. But what was it like in March and April? I mean, you sell through stores. You do sell online. But I do wonder.
11: Yeah, I mean, leading into the, the lockdown, and it pretty much happened. So our business is all U.K. and the U.S., and uh, lockdowns happened initially, and in, it in, started in the U.S., uh, Vegas and New York, then Florida, and then the following week in the U.K. So, by the middle of March, all of our shops had uh, had been closed around the world, and obviously, then that that took a an impact, uh, and it was almost a year end. The year end was the end of April, so that really impacted the last quarter and uh, and the results overall. Uh, we had great momentum leading into that period. We were trading in the US plus 35%, UK plus 10. So we were trading very, very well. But obviously, when the shops shut, there's a, there's not a you know a lot you can do. Um, we did. We think we you know managed the situation very well during the lockdown. We kept all of our people employed. We kept them all mm. paid. Wow. Uh, we kept them all training. You can never train enough in this category. So all of our people were doing tons of training. And um, we held it together, and uh, you know, couldn't wait for the stores to start opening it again, which they did in the U.S. in the in the month of uh, May. Uh, UK was June. Uh, UK, we have a very, very strong online business that doubled uh, during the lockdown period, wow. and it's been trading about plus 55 since. Um, so, we're, and we're you know, we're better equipped, I think, than most. We're very, very active on digital. Uh, we we've, we've, um, we're very good on CRM. We got a great database. We we um, gave all of our, our uh, store guys uh, Zoom licenses and training so they could sell remotely with Zoom. Um, very active in digital we did lots of you know lots of uh, social media.
1: You know what is the way forward I mean what changes in terms of how you sell like you were talking about how you guys quickly pivoted and set up some of your sales folks to be able to sell on Zoom does something like that stay Brian does it make sense?
11: Sure it does Carol Uh, I think you know we've all really learned Zoom and Teams and uh, WebEx and whatever I think we've all really learned uh, how to communicate that way how effective it can be um so for sure i think that stays um i think everything digital has hugely been accelerated uh the importance of social media uh the importance so we, we put a big emphasis on crm so we can keep in touch with all of our all of our past clients um so everything digital has become very very uh, important i think for everybody and i think we've accelerated a number of years and or otherwise would have been a you know slow development.
5: So, Brian, you, as it relates to the digital and your and your digital sales in part of your total sales, what was that percentage before the pandemic, and, and kind of where, where do you think that's going to be on the other side? Well,
11: the the unusual thing that, um, that you might be surprised to hear is that the the market online in the US is uh, is pretty underdeveloped actually for a for new uh, products. So there's a very active Pre-owned uh, market in the US, but uh, not so much for new. Whereas in the UK, the market uh, for um, for new products uh, from uh, is, is is strong. And overall, our um, share of our total group is around uh, was around seven percent. Uh, during obviously during lockdown, it's, uh, it's it's hugely accelerated in terms of that percentage. Um, we don't. The biggest brand that we sell is Rolex, and they don't authorize us to sell online, so that will always suppress the potential that's there. But for the brands that uh, that we sell online, uh, we do up to twenty percent of the business. So brands like uh, like Cartier, Omega, Breitling, Tag uh, Tiger For those brands in the UK, we sell a bit twenty percent of the business online, and it's a an increasing proportion. And we have big ambitions to do the same in the US.
1: So what does, Brian, I'm always curious when we, you know, we're hitting into earnings season, certainly here in the U.S., and what we want to hear from is, you know, leaders about what 2021 looks like. Um, I think, you know, we're just kind of scrambling and reaching for some kind of ideas of what visibility looks like. What, What do you think 2021 looks like for you?
11: But I, I think for us and for the whole luxury market, um, the, the critical you know, thing is, in uh, particular, for the luxury market, actually less so for, for us directly, is the amount of uh, uh, luxury tourism uh, that's going to go on, amount of travel that's going to go on around the world. And I'm getting less and less uh, optimistic about that, actually, I think. Yeah. The earliest that we'll see travel get back to normal uh, well, well, is 22 and beyond. Um, so I think that that will impact the luxury market in total. Um, everybody in luxury has included are very much focused on the domestic uh, consumer, uh, which I think is longer term a good thing. Um, and I think both in the UK and the US uh, for luxury watches, for us specifically, uh, the domestic businesses, you know, as we're proving very healthy. And the year before uh, lockdown, it was seventeen percent over of our total business. Okay. Uh, overall, so it's by no means a dependency. Our, our, our focus, both UK and US, is on domestic. Uh, but it was 17. percent Seven of the 17 was a uh, Chinese, and ten was a uh, was other tourists, and it was predominantly uh, around London. And Brian. But since then, it's been uh, it's been next to nothing uh, over the summer, <laughs> and we've yeah, obviously yeah. had to to overcome that, which we've done, and, and still uh, still growing our business. Yeah.
5: So, Brian, in this environment we find her in, what is your primary growth strategy? And if, if you had to change strategies here,
11: and uh, no, really no, um, we are, we obviously are doing well. Uh, we have confirmed all of our um, all of our investments, both capital. We've actually stepped up our marketing investment, uh, all on digital. Um, so we stay front foot. Uh, we believe really, we think the U.S. market's hugely underdeveloped for a uh, for what we do, so we see great growth prospects in the U.S. Uh, we're opening stores. We're opening mono brand stores. with are big partners. We'll open eight of them before uh, before December. Um, so we are we are front foot. We're believing in what we're doing. Uh, we, are, we are working our way through this positively, and I think we're going to come out even more positively when the, when the world gets back to normal.
1: So, what keeps you up at night?
11: Um... I, I think we obviously you do worry that uh, things could go you know very negatively wrong if there could be a an impact on production of all of our product comes from Switzerland mm. um, and if there was an and obviously there was a lockdown in Switzerland uh, earlier this year impacting production if that happened again obviously it would uh, it would be a worry we don't anticipate it happening but it obviously could. Um, when we look ahead, actually, our biggest concern is the next quarter we're going into, um, the threat of the impact of uh, uh, local lockdowns picking up the momentum. Concerned about the election in the U.S., you know, I think it's creating instability and kind of look forward to that being behind us, uh, but it could impact in this quarter.
1: Um
11: But generally, I sleep okay at night.
1: That's good to hear from Brian Duffy, CEO of Watches of Switzerland Group, especially since there are so many stresses on today's leaders amid the uncertainty because of COVID-19. Pretty remarkable that they were able to hold on to their workers, amp up their digital strategies, but definitely still concerned about the luxury market, especially as that luxury tourist stays away. That wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Carol Masser. Be sure to tune in to our daily radio show Monday through Friday on Bloomberg Radio, starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. You can also hear more of our conversations wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, the show is also on YouTube. Just search on Bloomberg Global News. And be sure to check out our Bloomberg Business Week Extra podcast. This week, it's with Jim Steyer, founder and CEO of Common Sense Media. He's got a new book out. It's called Which Side of History? How to Technology is reshaping democracy in our lives. It's a great collection of essays from many voices that you definitely have heard of, and they're all writing about how technology is affecting our world. Bloomberg Business Week, of course, available on newsstands now on the Bloomberg and online at Bloomberg.com. Have a great and safe weekend, everybody. This is Bloomberg.